the power of the Holy Spirit working through word and sacrament. Then we hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. My friends, it's just that simple. It's in the divine service that he's there for you, that he delivers the forgiveness. That's where he promises forgiveness will be. Uh, And so that's why it's so important uh, to be in church. We long that God would answer the prayer when we pray, deliver us from evil. Get me out of here. Get me out of this sin-filled world. And that is Jesus Christ uh, who says, do not count their sin against them for my blood has paid the price for that. Now on 95.7 FM, it's Proclaiming the One with Pastor Clint Poppy and Pastor Adam Moline from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, Vicar Daniel Golden. It's uh, got a hard to get that word and name out of my mouth yet. He's still a newbie around here. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. It is our privilege each week to bring you this program we call Proclaiming the One. We proclaim the one and only Savior from sin, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We do this as we examine the one-year series of readings from Lutheran Service Book. We are working our way each and every week through our uh, liturgical calendar, and today we're going to be taking a look at the 10th Sunday after Trinity. Pastor Moline, how are you today? I'm doing very well. I've Looking it up, you know, there's the famous uh, Christian preacher, St. John, the uh, golden mouth to golden tongue, St. John uh, Chrysostom. John Chrysostom, yes. You, you know, we could also have the golden vicar, which is Chrysopathos, and pathos is also the word we get pathetic from, so it, it goes together, Chrysopathos. Ah, pathological. There, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you should see the look on his face right now. It's kind of <laughs> like... Uh, uh, you know, I'm going to have a whole year of this uh, stuff. Uh, vicar, you starting to feel like a vicar yet? Yeah, because a paycheck comes with it, so it's fine. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that's that's a moderately acceptable answer. So uh, uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll see if the uh, if the uh, vicarage evaluations match the paycheck, or if uh, we're on a we're on a strict uh, curse bless. Uh, system here at good shepherd so but uh, i think you're safe in that respect for the year what do you think pastor yeah i suppose so as long as he remembers to uh, skim off the top and pay the people who are writing the reviews ah there you go there you go we'll skip all those bible passages about not accepting bribes um (laughs) let's get back to the word of god here uh get away from the silliness 10 sunday after trinity the introit selected verses from one of my all-time favorite psalms psalm 55 psalm 55 uh psalm 55 22 which is uh the uh last part of the antiphon uh, I think, yes, last part of the antiphon, Psalm fifty-five twenty-two is my confirmation verse. So there you go. Um, Vicar, take it away, the introit for the 10th Sunday after Trinity. I call to God, and he hears my voice. He redeems my soul in safety. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. My heart is in anguish within me. 
The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and horror overwhelms me. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. I call to God, and the Lord will save me. That's the uh, the last line. But we got a we got a lot of stuff going on here before we get to that part. Um, I call, He hears. Pastor, in many respects, that short little phrase "I call, He hears" sums up the life of a Christian. What do you think? It does, um, because that's what we're constantly doing in our, uh, to use the modern language, faith walk, or our our lives here in this world. We're faced with all sorts sorts of challenges and difficulties, and as they come up, what do we constantly do? We constantly call out to God and say, Lord, uh, hear my prayer, hear my cry for supplication. Uh, And uh, we, we, we pray the Psalms to God. We call out and say, help us out in this difficult time. The, um, the fact of the matter remains that if we have no faith walk, if we don't have faith, if we are in sheer unbelief, the last thing we would think to do is to call out to God when we're having a difficult time. And so calling out to God, cries of anguish, um, prayers, of deliverance, all these things, all of these things are uh, fruits of faith. Is that a fair way to say it? They are, um, at least when we're calling out to God uh, for help and for care and for mercy. Yeah, I mean, if, and, we're, call- if we're calling out yeah, to God, uh, you know, profanities or something, that would be, that would be obviously That's one different. of the interesting things, isn't it, about the atheists that uh, exist so often they are just fine being angry at God and calling him out in that regard, but not uh, they aren't willing to call for him and help and things like that, which is kind of, uh, you know, maybe belies the truth about what they think about God, that he does exist. They just are unhappy that he does. Um, yeah, we call out to faith as a response of, uh, of, of our faith. We call it to God. And we talked about this, I think, the other day on At Home in Your Hymnal. If you listen to that particular episode, we talked about prayer and what it is and how it is the voice of faith uh, that talks to God about all the different things going on and ask God to remember the promises that he's made in that regard. Okay. Um, the, uh, the end of verse or, uh, Psalm 55, verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. That goes on to say, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Uh, a tremendous problem here. Here we have this, uh, this invitation, cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. So God is inviting us to give, uh, just give it to the Lord. There's another one of those, uh, you know, kind of common Christian phrases that's out there, but it's right here in the scripture. Cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. Pastor, what kind of burdens are we talking about here? How do I give or cast my burden on the Lord, and how will he sustain me? So it's a three-part question here. Uh, address it any way you want, but all the, this verse right here begs all three of those questions. 
Well, uh, the burdens that we carry as Christians are numerous. We deal with suffering and pain and sorrow. We have loved ones who are sick, uh, cancer, Alzheimer's, uh, Parkinson's, a uh, number of other diseases and maladies, and that weighs down on us. We also have uh, our guilt, the things that we know that we've done wrong uh, and that weigh heavily on us. I should have done this. I should have done that. Uh, we have those who are lost from us and the questions that come about because of that. Where are they? Do they make it into heaven or do they not? Uh, we have... Uh, uh, all sorts of burdens that we bear. And the, the neat thing is is that um, it's not like we actually have to throw them on God. God comes down here and takes them upon himself in the waters of holy baptism. He says, uh, uh, your yoke is easy and your burden is light because I'm the one who's going to bear all the burdens that uh, you face in this world and I'm going to carry them to the cross and kill them and then rise again so that you too might have eternal life and live and uh, uh, peace and comfort and joy in heaven forever and ever and ever. And so the burdens that we have, God takes them in our, the waters of holy baptism, and he solves them through his uh, cross and resurrection, and he grants us eternal life in their place. So I don't know if I've answered all three of those, but at least I've hit two for sure. So Yeah, well, uh, I need more <laughs> clarification because it sounded to me like um, when it says cast your burden on the Lord, kind of sounded like you basically said, God already did that for me, and I'm completely passive in this. So don't I have to pay, pray, obey? Don't I have to do something, um, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually, uh, some act of devotion or some great sacrificial act, thought, word, or deed to give it all to the Lord? Well, those things uh, we do... Uh, and they are necessary, but they are fruits of faith. They come about because of what God has already done and what he's done for us and how he's taken our burdens upon himself. And so um, the voice of faith continually does bring before God the burdens that we have, not so much that he will um, take them again and die for them again, but rather that uh, He might, we might know that he knows about them and that we might uh, realize and trust that he has done all that is necessary uh, to grant us forgiveness and to take those burdens away from us uh, so that we might realize who we are in God rather than uh, just think of God as some taskmaster where we give him the hard things and worry about the things that are easy. So if I'm hearing you correctly, and uh, I know you won't hesitate to uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong or uh, whatever, but uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, Casting your burden on the Lord is synonymous with faith? I would say it's a fruit of faith, and that the person who has faith does this, whether they realize it or not. They well, Okay, whether they realize it or not. There we go. All right, I like that. Keep going. They, they are uh, in faith trusting that God will provide all that is necessary to sustain them in this world and in the world to come, uh, just as God has promised to. So they hear the word and they respond faithfully to that word. And that is casting our burdens on the Lord. Uh, it is that fruit of faith, knowing God has dealt with them by his blood. Okay. Now the last part of my three-part question here in the time that we have left, he will sustain you. 
you mentioned holy baptism before. How does God sustain me or keep me going when the trials, the tribulations, the problems, that long laundry list of both physical and spiritual maladies keep attacking and assailing me? How will God sustain me? He gives you the word um, spoken by sinful pastors, sung in hymns, uh, preached and uh, talked about in church services. He gives you all your fellow Christians who rejoice in hearing that word with you, uh, who are there in your times of struggle and pain. We are the body of Christ, and we all hurt and uh, rejoice together. Uh, and so in that way, by giving us his word, uh, God continues to pour out his Holy Spirit and create and sustain faith in us so that we are allowed uh, as a fruit of faith to cast our burdens on the Lord. And so, once again, it all comes down to what God is doing for us. That's where the gospel is found rather than what we do for God. And so this is also why when challenges arise, when you lose a loved one uh, or you're sick or whatever, to continue to be a part of the life of the church where the word is preached and taught and delivered into your ears uh, in all the various ways so that the Holy Spirit continues to pour out his grace and mercy upon you. Staying connected to the word of God so that God can and will do his thing, or as Pastor Kuhlman would say, have his way with us. That's kind of a good uh, general theme for this 10th Sunday after Trinity. This is Proclaiming the One. We need to take a short break. Don't change that dial. When we come back, we're going to look at our gospel reading, Luke 19, 41 to 48. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, we're looking at the readings for the 10th Sunday after Trinity. In our first segment, we looked at the introit for Trinity 10, uh, selected verses from Psalm 55. And it has that, uh, that great verse from Psalm 55, Psalm 55, 22, cast your burdens on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. The gospel reading for the 10th Sunday after Trinity is from Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 48. Pastor, take it away, would you please? When Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Well, there are so many little phrases in that text that uh, would be a, a great hook or a great uh, theme 
to preach on or to teach and uh, so many of them here but before we get into the details of the word here pastor uh, Luke 19 can you tell us where we are chronologically with regard to Jesus and his mission and ministry and his work at what part of the uh, three-year ministry of Jesus uh, do we have right here well, this is uh, towards the end, of course. Uh, Jesus has entered Jerusalem, um, and this is the the uh, last time that he'll be there, really. He comes into Jerusalem for the Passover meal, and uh, he comes by way of Jericho in the first part of chapter 19, and he'll end up being crucified and killed uh, just a few days later uh, in the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so we've got Holy Week stuff. <laughs> Holy Week stuff. Holy Week stuff. And uh, it seems kind of odd, right smack dab, uh, in the middle of our Trinity season, toward the end of summer, to uh, to have a text that would take us to Holy Week. But Jesus has set his face resolutely on Jerusalem. It just seems like all of our non-festival readings are, are pointing us toward what Jesus is going to do and where Jesus is going to go. So he comes to Jerusalem as he said he was going. He said he was uh, uh, going to Jerusalem and what he would do there. He comes to Jerusalem and the very th- first thing he does is he weeps over it. Yeah. The uh, the tra- why? The tradition is that this takes place on the Mount of Olives uh, right before he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey. <clears throat> and um, from that particular place, uh, there's actually even a garden there now called Domus Flavut, or Domius Flavut. Uh, uh, my Latin's not quite right there, but uh, the Lord wept. And you can see the temple and the temple mount in front of you. Off to the left, you can see the uh, lower hill of Jerusalem that would have been Jerusalem for David and Solomon. You can see the far hills beyond the uh, beyond the temple where uh, like the Mount Zion would be today. And you can even see the place um, where Jesus is going to be crucified not long after that from that place. Today you can see it by the gray dome of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre there. And so he comes in and he looks at Jerusalem and he weeps. And there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, First off and most importantly and primarily, it's because of what they're about to do to him. And The reason that they crucify him and arrest him and lie against him and all these things is because they do not understand who he is and believe it. And so that's the first reason he's weeping. They have not believed his word and the reality of who he is. The second reason is Jesus is God and he can see the future. And what's going to happen, uh, you know, just about uh, 35 years after Jesus crucified and raises and ascends into heaven is the Jews of Jerusalem are going to rebel against the Roman government. And so um, first the future emperor Vespasian comes and he begins an invasion of the Holy Land. Uh, After he gets elected emperor he goes back to Rome and his son Titus comes to Jerusalem. And uh, they do build a wall all the way around Jerusalem. They camp up on Mount Scopus and they slowly invade and take over the entire city of Jerusalem. They kill 
many, many of the Jews that are there. They burn the temple to the ground. Uh, that uh, supposedly, according to Titus's account in Josephus, uh, is an accident. He wanted to save the temple and uh, dedicate it to the glory of Caesar, but somebody accidentally set it on fire and it burned down to the ground. They tear down all the stones and leave them lying in piles and heaps uh, around the base of the Temple Mount. And um, any Jewish person who did not die was taken into slavery and sent around the empire, uh, even paraded through Rome during a, um, a celebration of these military victories uh, just a few years after that. So there is a great deal of sorrow that's going to happen in the city of Jerusalem, uh, reflecting what had happened in 586 B.C. when it was taken over by the Babylonians. It's going to happen again now uh, during uh, just a few years after Jesus. <clears throat> in uh, verse 43 and following, it seems to be echoing just exactly everything you taught us there historically. Yes. It, are you trying to tell me that uh, Jesus could foresee the future and see physically what was going to happen to Jerusalem? Let me refresh people's minds. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you. Uh, that's that wall you were talking about. Surround you, hem you in on every side, tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they not, will not leave one stone upon another in it because you did not know the time of your visitation. Is that what Jesus is talking about here? Is he speaking metaphorically, or can he literally look into the future and see that these things are going to happen? He's, he's um, speaking about the future in solid, concrete, clear words that will be fulfilled uh, in a historical reality that will be just a little while after he ascends. And even I'm, I'm a little nervous to even say he looks into the future because um, as God, he knows all things. It's not like he's a soothsayer or a medium and is Excellent using some sort of uh, uh, crystal ball. He knows everything that has happened, will happen, or is happening. And so in that knowledge, he speaks this word of truth and prophecy uh, that because of their sin, because of their failure to understand the word, because of their high and mighty attitude against the Romans, uh, Jerusalem will be completely destroyed. And, and you can still, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can see the damage. A lot of the stones they threw down broke the pavement. and They've just uncovered in the last hundred years. You can see uh, stones that fell 100 feet from the top of the Temple Mount down to the pavement and crushed things underneath it. You, they just found, uh, this would be about two months ago, they found skeletons in a sewer pipe of Jewish people that were trying to escape through the sewers to get out of Jerusalem to prevent being killed uh, by the Roman invaders. And they just now have found their bodies. And so this was a terrible, devastating event that I don't think we can really wrap our mind around how complete the destruction of Jerusalem was in this particular event. And from one level... When, uh, when Jesus tells us things that, uh, when he predicts the future and then it comes true, I'm reminded several places in the Old Testament where it says, uh, here's how to test the prophets. If they tell you something is going to happen and it happens, uh, then you can believe them. And if they tell you something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, they are a false prophet. And so here Jesus, on that particular level, is proving that he is a true prophet. But there's more to it. Jesus says, 
Uh, would that you, even you, had known on this day that make for peace. So he's talking about peace. And then at the end of that section that I just read in verse 44, you did not know the time of your visitation. So if you can connect those two themes for me, Pastor, what is it that brings peace and what kind of peace are we talking about here? And what does this have to do with the time of visitation? Well, in our world today, we have lots of people who think they know what brings peace and maybe they even go into government thinking that they can bring world peace around, you know, or uh, it's always the joke about the... um, uh, Miss America contestants, you know, uh, what are you going to do to uh, fix the tax problem here in the United States? World peace, you know. (laughs) Um, That's not a reality. There will never be peace in this world because this world is full of sinners. In fact, there's more sinners uh, around today than there have been uh, in all the history of humanity before us. And because they're all sinners uh, around us, there will not be peace. There will always be fighting and war and politics that must go on as a result of sin. The thing that brings peace then is from outside of this, outside this world, and that is Jesus, uh, who comes to bring peace by his death and resurrection, who is the Prince of Peace, uh, and who is the one who truly understands a peace that this world cannot understand and gives that peace to us through his word and sacraments, which grant us eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and salvation. That's the peace that Jesus wishes that we know. And so when he says, you didn't know the time of your visitation, he's saying you didn't know when God came, and he came in me because I'm God and man together. And that is what you've missed. And because of that, these dire consequences will come upon you. It's, it may be worth pointing out, too, uh, in other Gospels, Jesus warns his followers that when they see uh, these particular signs, they should get out of Jerusalem and run away, and they do. And so while there are many, many Jewish people killed by the Romans, the uh, Christians actually escaped and uh, were kept safe by going to other cities at this time. So we have a peace that the world cannot give, a peace that can only be won through forgiveness, life, and salvation, or that is forgiveness, life, and salvation. It can only be won from God. And what I want to say with regard to this visitation is that uh, this is an echo or pointing toward the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that is that a stretch, Pastor, or can I go there? No, that's not a stretch at all. That's the entirety of what he's talking about is when God became man and came and talked with you and you didn't know him. Uh, and it kind of then brings together all these other parables too when uh, Jesus says, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was in prison and you did not visit me. They say, Wait a second, didn't we do this? No, because you didn't know me. You didn't understand who I am. And this builds on what we heard a couple weeks ago. Beware of false prophets who take this whole thing um, out of context. Or even the Bach cantata from the Bach show that we had for the um, eighth, or was it the must be the seventh Sunday after Trinity, where the first chorus is all about how we ought not neglect the doctrine of the incarnation because of its importance. And it's not just a doctrine or a teaching for Easter 
or Christmas. This is the very lifeblood of the Christian life, God coming to us in the flesh for our salvation. We need to take a short break. This is Pastor Poppy and Pastor Moline. We're working through the readings for the 10th Sunday after Trinity, proclaiming the one. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline, we are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for worship every Sunday at 8 and 1030 with Sunday School for All Ages in between. We also gather for worship on Wednesday evenings year-round at 630. We're looking at the readings this week for the 10th Sunday after Trinity. You can uh, check out the archives on our radio website, www.thecross957.org. And by downloading the app or listening directly on the website, you can listen to our church services live and many of the other self-generated programs that we have here at Good Shepherd. Check us out. Give us your feedback. We'd love to hear what you're thinking or how these programs have helped, encouraged, blessed, and uh, certainly any and all questions are uh, fair game. In our first segment for the 10th Sunday after Trinity, we looked at the uh, introit uh, selected verses from Psalm 55, and uh, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, Psalm 55, 22. In uh, segment number two, we looked at the gospel reading, Luke chapter 19, 41 through 46. We got a good start there, maybe even a little better than a good start. We talked about uh, Jesus uh, during this Holy Week time. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. Jesus talks about peace. Jesus talks about his visitation. And we know that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, visits us by taking on flesh and blood, living, dying, and rising, winning the forgiveness of sins, true peace for us. Okay, so that part sounds pretty wonderful, pretty simple, pretty Lutheran. And then at the end of our text, we have something that uh, sometimes causes uh, heartburn for Christians. Starting in uh, verse 46, 45, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus cleanses the temple. We've got it recorded for us right here, Luke 19. Um, we said that Luke 19, this is Holy Week talk, and uh, I don't know if this is Monday or Tuesday in Holy Week, but it's early in Holy Week. Uh, I thought I read someplace else in one of the other Gospels that Jesus cleansed the temple early in his ministry, not Holy Week before his crucifixion. So is this one of those uh, mistakes in the Scripture that you Christians are always trying to... Uh, uh, wiggle room around, or pastor, uh, help us sort out this one cleansing, two cleansing. Uh, how does this fit, especially for Lutherans like you and me, 
who actually believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. There are no mistakes. There are no contradictions. How is this to be understood? Well, the other place that you're thinking of is from John chapter 2, starting in verse 13, where Jesus cleanses the uh, temple. And we might think at first that these are different accounts because John's is at the beginning of his gospel and Luke's is at the end of his gospel. We do have the unique thing here, though, with John's uh, account that says the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And so I would say this is one event that happens at the Passover, the same Passover where Jesus later on is killed and crucified. And yet um, John is not really writing a linear history of all the things Jesus did. John is writing a history based on particular signs that Christ has accomplished. These things are written so that you may believe. Whereas Luke's gospel, uh, at the beginning of his gospel, he says, I have taken undertaken to write a very orderly account that's well-researched. And so Luke's is more, um, I would say, chronological. John's is more, he's trying to get across particular themes and ideas and thoughts. And so it's not this happened, then this happened, then this happened, but rather... On one day, this happened. On another day, this happened. And so we have no problem with these accounts being at different places in the gospel, knowing they're talking about one event, the cleansing of the temple. Okay, so you would come down that we do not have two cleansings of the temple. We have one uh, cleansing of the temple that's recorded early in John and late in Luke. Correct. Okay, now there are some that would say that there are two. And uh, how would we respond to to those folks or to those arguments? Well, that's the other thing about the Gospel of John is that it does at least record three different times uh, about the Passover. And uh, so we know Jesus' ministry lasted for three years because of that. And we have no problem with if he would have done it another time. Uh, It's possible he would have gone to Jerusalem more than one time throughout his uh, days of ministry. And uh, so it's not really a big deal in my mind. It's not a question of is the Bible true or not, because either one could logically be true. Okay, and so we do not have a definite word, thus saith the Lord, that there were one or two. But however you fall down on this question, it squares with the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. Right. Uh, so so there, again, this is not a, it, for me, it's not a big deal. No. I'm surprised how many people come up to me and ask me the question. That's the only reason I bring it up here on the program. I would even say this is one of those things that because of the destruction of Jerusalem that we talked about in the last segment has been recorded for us how this actually happened in the bottom of the foot of the Temple Mount, uh, there were shops uh, along the whole wall. In fact, some of them are recorded or uh, preserved for us because you can see where the Temple Mount wall was burned where there was no shop, but not burned where there was. And so this pattern of arches along the whole wall, uh, burned in and soot, shows you where people were selling goods in Jerusalem. And the problem that Jesus has with this is that It's essentially selling forgiveness. If I've sinned against you and I go to Jerusalem to atone for my sins, rather than me having brought my first fruits, I just show up there and I buy something from someone. 
I'm paying, essentially, for my forgiveness of sins, which we know from the Reformation is a big problem. And so this is the same problem Jesus has here at the same time, which is why he drives these money changers out. He drives the people selling goats and sheep out and says, my house is not a den of robbers, because what is his house? It's a place for forgiveness given by God, free and clear, without any merit or worthiness in ourselves. And that question, what is his house, uh, will be answered uh, in our next segment when we go to our uh, Old Testament reading from Jeremiah chapter 7. Uh, we got a little bit more, as uh, Pastor Kuhlman would say, we got a little bit more meat on this bone. Uh, my wife and I were recently in Kansas City. We went to a ball game. We went to uh, the Negro Baseball League Museum. Uh, we went to the Federal Reserve Museum. I mean, uh, Kansas City is an amazing place to visit. So many things to do, a lot of them very inexpensive or free. But when you think of Kansas City, you think of barbecue. And uh, we had the opportunity to go to the world-famous Arthur Bryant Barbecue. We went there a couple weeks ago as well. Oh, man. And I had spare ribs. And let me tell you, there was no meat on the bone when I was done. Okay. Uh, took a long time to get to that. <laughs> but uh, here we got a little more meat on the bone. So um, my house will be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. Then starting in verse 47 of Luke chapter 19. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Jesus says, a little bit later on in the gospel, uh, I was teaching openly in the temple every day. But you didn't come and arrest me. And now you come out here to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, with uh, clubs and torches and all this kind of stuff. Why was Jesus teaching openly in the temple like this? And why did the people who really wanted to destroy him, it says so right here, why did they not arrest him when they could have so easily? Well, Jesus is teaching in the temple because that's exactly what the temple's there for. Uh, just like our churches are here for hearing God's word and and believing it. And so, yes, there is the temple where uh, the Holy of Holies was, and there was the altar where sacrifices were made. But the temple is much, much bigger than just that. It is 40 acres of land uh, leveled off on the top of this mountain, uh, and there were porticos uh, along all the sides, which would be colonnades, you know, um, and they'd have a roof there. It would be cool. There would be a breeze. It was a place where you sat down and you talked theology. We need to do more of this in our society today, talk theology. Um, but that's what they did there. And so Jesus is preaching and teaching, talking theology with all the people who are coming in and out of the temple. And this is a busy time with the Passover uh, just around the corner. So he's proclaiming the word because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And the, the scribes and the, the leaders are afraid to do anything because everybody hears his word and believes it. And they trust that he is who he's claiming to be, God in the flesh. And they love the things that he's saying. And so um, it's the same thing, you know, with uh, in a big mob, you know, you don't, 
go right in after the mob. You let the mob die down and then go get the people from their homes later on. That's the same kind of thing that the Jewish leaders are going to do. They want to keep themselves safe above anything else. So they'll arrest Jesus when there's no one there to defend him. So they were being uh, sneaky, crafty, tactical in their uh, in their disc- their uh arrest and uh, plans to destroy Jesus. It says here, all the people were hanging on his words. That's an amazing word picture there for us, Pastor. In the time that we have left, uh, what does it mean to hang on the words of Jesus? Well, um, you think about the word hang uh, and the way that it's used. I like to think of like maybe a You've seen those motorcycles that uh, have the weights on either side that go on wires. There's sometimes there's toys, sometimes they're real motorcycles like at the circus. They hang on that wire and they balance there perfectly because without that wire, there's nothing else, right? And if the wire breaks, they fall. But they're not afraid of that because the wire can support their weight and everything that they have, they put there on that wire, keeping them safe. That's the same thing these things are, these people are doing with the word of Christ. They're letting everything in their life hang securely, rest securely on what Jesus says. And should the word of Jesus be found to be wrong, there's nothing left. We are to be pitied among all people if uh, Christ did not really raise from the dead or say the things that he said. But we're actually safe there. Uh, guarded, protected, no fear, no worry, because Christ's word is true, and it keeps us safe, and it sustains us. That is a marvelous, marvelous word picture, and I'm sure that our hearers can grasp that. Uh, Do a little Google search on somebody doing a tightrope walk or somebody riding... I think somebody did a tightrope walk between the Twin Towers before they were uh, torn down. Uh, You've seen uh, uh, like over great canyons and places of of great danger that uh, if you if if the rope or your balance uh, fails you, you're dead. There's nothing but destruction. What a marvelous, marvelous word picture for us as we with our life on the line hang on the words of Jesus who put his life on the line on Calvary's cross for you and me. We need to take a short break. This is Pastor Poppy and Pastor Moline. We're looking at the readings for the 10th Sunday after Trinity. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, we are looking at the readings for the 10th Sunday after Trinity. Proclaiming the One is a program where each week we take a look at the upcoming readings to help you prepare for your Sunday morning worship, to help you prepare for your daily devotions, your daily walk with Christ. It is a great opportunity to dig a little deeper into God's Word. In segment one, we looked at the introit selected verses from Psalm 55. Segment two and three, we looked at the gospel reading for Trinity 10, Luke 19, 41 to 48, where we have Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Jesus talking about the peace that is needed and the visitation that the people had missed. And then he enters the temple. He throws out the money changers. He teaches daily in the temple. And the people are, or the uh, scribes, Pharisees, the leaders are plotting to destroy him. But they can't because everybody is hanging on his words. Oh, that people would hang on the word of Jesus today. That's our prayer. 
Our Old Testament reading is from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah is a tough book, Pastor. Um, we have we have Jeremiah who's really called to an impossible situation, to preach to an impossible people, an impossible message. Kind of seems almost a little bit like today, doesn't it? Our reading is chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. Would you like to share that for me? The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. <clears throat> Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Wow. Hard words. Powerful powerful words that uh, that speak not only to Jeremiah's day but they speak very very clearly to our day as well it's pretty easy to see how this Old Testament reading was chosen to connect us to the gospel reading uh, you know you have heard it read uh, Jesus said uh, it is written my house should be a house of prayer but you've made it a den of robbers and so we see this uh, this quote here from Jeremiah chapter 7. Uh, but there is even more going on here. And uh, there, there's so many different places that I'd like to jump into this particular text. And we really need four part segments to get through the whole thing. And so we'll just see how far we go with regard to this. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, God tells Jeremiah. And proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. How is this command that God gave Jeremiah the exact same command that he gives every called and ordained preacher of the word today? Well, a preacher is called to proclaim that which is not his own but rather that which he has been told through the scriptures and the, the word of God. Um, as a pastor, my job isn't to tell you what I think. My job is to tell you what God says in his word. This is why sometimes pastors have to say really difficult things. Um, you know, if it was up to you and just up to your word and nothing else, would you talk to people about living together outside of marriage, have those fun conversations? Uh, probably would just scoot right over Scoot it. over that or... Uh, if you knew somebody was 
doing drugs probably would avoid that too. Uh, it, as long as it wasn't directly affecting me, you darn right, right I wouldn't. But a pastor is given to speak a word that's not from himself, not about the things he cares about, but rather a word from God. And for that reason, then, pastor preaches and teaches and talks about all these things and calls sin, sin, and gives people also the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. Um, that's the reality of what a pastor does. So when God sends Jeremiah to preach, uh, to preach his word, that's what he does. And it's kind of a dangerous thing, too, to consider it because— uh, at this time, there were false altars set up in the temple, uh, and so some of the people that were coming into the temple were there to worship Baal, not the true God. This is part of the problem. Um, and Jeremiah is preaching the word the same to those who are real Jews and those two who are not, and he's just shouting it out there. Um, in Germany, they have a couple churches that we visited when I was there have... Uh, pulpits outside on the corner of the street and the priest would go up there and they would preach a sermon to the people out in the street shopping and walking by and things like that that's what jeremiah is doing here when uh, jeremiah takes the call he uh, immediately speaks amend your ways and your deeds kind of sounds like he's calling them to repent is that a is that a fair con comparison here i think that's exactly what he's doing okay and then he says do not trust in these deceptive words this is the temple of the lord the temple of the lord the temple of the lord it is the temple of the lord so how is the how are these words and it's repeated three times, which I would think has to be significant too. How are these words, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, how are these words deceptive? What's going on here, Pastor? Well, the people living in Jerusalem at the time have this idea that because God's house is there, they'll be just kept perfect, per, perpetually safe no matter what, that no invading army would be able to conquer Jerusalem because we've got the house of the Lord. Kind of like a good luck charm. Yeah, and and you have to give them a little bit of leeway here because there at the time of Hezekiah, what happens? An army shows up on the gates of Jerusalem and says, "Abandon all hope. You know we've got you. There, there's no hope for you." And no, we're we've got the house of the Lord, and the whole army dies overnight. And what doesn't die? One hundred eighty-five thousand. One angel. Uh, Sennacherib. We got all. We got all that wonderful, wonderful account for us in Scripture. So there's a little bit of truth in this uh, uh, thinking that because they have the temple of the Lord, they are they they have like a a force field around them, and that enemies cannot. Uh, what are they misunderstanding, Pastor? Well, they think it's just the reality that the house of the Lord is there that that's enough, that it's like kind of a talisman or a good luck charm in itself. And they've missed what's actually there. The house of the Lord, the temple building itself is not the important thing, but rather what is in the temple that is important and matters. And what's in the temple is the place where God dwells. God himself allows himself to be in the Holy of Holies so that uh, he can be there for his people. And if you think just the building itself is important and not the actual teaching or the word or the God who is behind the teaching and the word, then you've missed the boat. And this is a big problem in the church today, too, because lots of people 
make their church building into an idol. And it usually happens like this, you know. You can't move that cross because my great aunt Matilda donated it. And, you know, even if it's ratty or bad, we can't get rid of it because it's a donation. Or, um, you know, I, I gave a lot of money for this particular project, so I need you to listen to me on X, Y, and Z. Uh, even in North Dakota, in the one church in the basement, <clears throat> there was a TV, black and white, uh, attached to a pedestal, a wooden pedestal, that didn't work anymore, but we couldn't throw it away because on the top of it, it said, donated by so-and-so in 1975 or something. And that's a problem. What's the real important thing at church? It's not the building. It's not the donations. It's not anything unless it's attached to God and his word. It's almost as if Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, is weeping tears of God over people who did not realize what it would take to actually bring them peace, which is the one who would come to the temple, who would visit the temple, God in the flesh, which is what everything in the temple pointed forward to. All of the prayers, all of the sacrifices, the entire sacrificial system pointing forward to the Prince of Peace who would come and fulfill the law and win forgiveness of sins. Can we make that comparison, Pastor? I, th I think we can because Jesus does. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And the people don't get it because they say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. We've been working on this for 46 years. How are you going to build it in three days? And Jesus is not talking about a building, but rather he sees himself as the temple because the temple is not necessarily the building. The temple is the place where God is. And I think we have that, and you have to help me remember where, we have a, a place in Scripture where the glory of God leaves the temple before it is destroyed. Like, is that in Jeremiah, or is that? Uh, it, it is. Uh, it is not in Jeremiah. It comes before. I believe. Is it in Ezekiel? Uh, yeah, that might be it. You're I right. Believe it, it is, is in Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Where, so, where, where the real presence of God, where where people could actually see by the cloud of God, the glory of God, the kavod, uh, extremely power-packed word, where where they could see the real presence of God. And when, uh, when God basically takes his ball and goes home. And then that building, I mean, there's nothing left of it today. It's gone completely, totally. The same as the temple that was there at Jesus' day when he was the real presence of and, and then we could take this one step further into our world today. Where's the real presence of Jesus here and now? And what's really important in church? And where do we act holy and reverent? Uh, uh, and why do we do that in the church? Is it because of the building? Is it because of uh, the comfort of the pews? Is it because of the great pastor? No, it's because God's word is there uh, for us. He's present in bread and wine. He's present in baptism. And since he's there, that's the thing that will keep us safe. And that's why the people of God need to demand that God's word be preached and taught in its truth and purity. Uh, pastors, this is what you are called to do. And the people of God, uh, we are all tempted to have itching ears. This is Satan at work. Anything other than your church building, the temple of God, whatever you want to call it, anything other than 
God's word being taught and proclaimed in its truth and purity and the gifts of God being delivered according to the command and promise of God is an abomination. Jeremiah 7.10. And we pray that God would preserve us from that abomination. We need to bring this program to a close. We've been uh, very, very blessed. Uh, while Pastor Moline and I, we, we had some computer issues. took us a little while to get these last three segments added to this program. But uh, we have had uh, a special guest here today. Pastor Moline's daughter, Claire, has been uh, just uh, wonderfully sitting there and listening and hanging on every word that we spoke. Claire, do you want to say hi? No. Okay, well, then we won't let you say hi. Okay, thanks, Claire, for being with us. And remember, it is soon to be Sunday morning. When it is, uh, get up, read your paper, drink your coffee, pray for your pastor, and go to church. This is Proclaiming the One. We'll see you again next week. God's richest blessings in Christ.